Dividing your life this way keeps you from becoming confused, prevents conflicts, helps you look at the whole picture. Second, demand of yourself clear, precise answers to these questions. What do I want to accomplish with my life? What do I want to be? And what does it take to satisfy me? Using this planning guide will help. An image of me 10 years from now. 10 years planning guide. A. Work department. 10 years from now. 1. What income level do I want to attain? 2. What level of responsibility do I seek? 3. How much authority do I want to command? 4. What prestige do I expect to gain from my work? B. Home department. 10 years from now. 1. What kind of standard of living do I want to provide for my family and myself? 2. What kind of house do I want to live in? 3. What kind of vacations do I want to take? 4. What financial support do I want to give my children in their early adult years? C. Social department, 10 years from now. 1. What kinds of friends do I want to have? 2. What social groups do I want to join? 3. What community leadership positions would I like to hold? 4. What worthwhile causes do I want to champion? A few years ago, my young son insisted the two of us build a doghouse for Peanut, an intelligent pup of dubious pedigree and my son's pride and joy. His persistence and enthusiasm won, so we proceeded to build a home Peanut could call her own. Our combined carpentry talent equaled zero, and the end product clearly reflected that fact. Shortly afterward, a good friend stopped by, and upon seeing what we had done, asked, What's that you've stuck up there among the trees? That's not a doghouse, is it? I replied that it was. Then he pointed out just a few of our mistakes and summed it all up with, Why didn't you get a plan? Nobody these days builds a doghouse without a blueprint. And please, as you visualize your future, don't be afraid to be blue sky. People these days are measured by the size of their dreams. No one accomplishes more than he sets out to accomplish. So visualize a big future. Here is a word-for-word -word excerpt from the life plan of one of my former trainees. Listen to it. Note how well this fellow visualized his home future. As he wrote this, it is obvious he really saw himself in the future. My home goal is to own a country estate. The house will be of the typical southern manor type, two stories, white columns and all. We will have the grounds fenced in, and probably will have a fish pond or two on the place, as my wife and I both enjoy fishing. We will keep our Doberman kennels back of the house somewhere. The thing I have always wanted is a long, winding driveway with trees lining each side. But a house is not necessarily a home. I am going to do everything I can to make our house more than just a place to eat and sleep. Of course, we do not intend to leave God out of our plans, and throughout the years we will spend a certain amount of time in church activities. Ten years from now, I want to be in a position to take a family cruise around the world. I would like very much to do this before the family gets scattered all over the world by marriages, etc. If we can't find the time to make the cruise all at once, we will put it into four or five separate vacations and visit a different part of the world each year. Naturally, all these plans in home department depend on how well things go in my work department so I'll have to keep on the ball if I'm to accomplish all this. This plan was written five years ago. The trainee then owned two small dime stores. Now he owns five, and he has purchased 17 acres for his country estate. He's thinking and progressing right along toward his goal. The three departments of your life are closely interrelated. Each depends on the others to some extent. But the one department that has the most influence over the other departments is your work. Thousands of years ago, the caveman who had the happiest home life and was most respected by his cavemates 
was the fellow who was most successful as a hunter. As a generalization, the same point holds true today. The standard of living we provide our families and the social and community respect we attain depends largely on our success in the work department. Not long ago, the McKinsey Foundation for Management Research conducted a large-scale study to determine what it takes to become an executive. Leaders in business, government, science, and religion were questioned. Over and over again, in different ways, these researchers kept getting one answer. The most important qualification for an executive is the sheer desire to get ahead. Remember this advice of John Wanamaker. A man is not doing much until the cause he works for possesses all there is of him. Desire, when harnessed, is power. Failure to follow desire, to do what you want to do most, paves the way to mediocrity. I recall a conversation with a very promising young writer on a college newspaper. This fellow had ability. If anyone showed promise for a career in journalism, it was he. Shortly before his graduation, I asked him, Well, Dan, what are you going to do, get into some form of journalism? Dan looked at me and said, Heck no. I like writing and reporting very much, and I've had a lot of fun working on the college paper. But journalists are a dime a dozen, and I don't want to starve. I didn't see or hear from Dan for five years. Then one evening I chanced to meet him in New Orleans. Dan was working as an assistant personnel director for an electronics company, and he was quick to let me know that he was quite dissatisfied with his work. Oh, I'm reasonably well paid, I'm with a wonderful company, and I've got reasonable security, but you know, my heart isn't in it. I wish now I'd gone with a publisher or a newspaper when I finished school. Dan's attitude reflected boredom, uninterest. He was cynical about many things. He will never achieve maximum success until he quits his present job and gets into journalism. Success requires heart and soul effort, and you can put your heart and soul only into something you really desire. Had Dan followed his desire, he could have risen to the very top in some phase of communication. And over the long pull, he would have made much more money and achieved far more personal satisfaction than he will find in his present kind of work. Switching from what you don't like to do to what you do like to do is like putting a 500-horsepower motor in a 10-year-old car. All of us have desires. All of us dream of what we really want to do. But few of us actually surrender to desire. Instead of surrendering to desire, we murder it. Five weapons are used to commit success suicide. Destroy them. They're dangerous. 1. Self-depreciation You have heard dozens of people say, I would like to be a doctor, or an executive, or a commercial artist, or in business for myself, but I can't do it. I lack brains. I'd fail if I tried. I lack the education and or experience. Many young folks destroy desire with the old negative self-depreciation. 2. Security-itis. Persons who say, I've got security where I am, use the security weapons to murder their dreams. 3. Competition. The field is already overcrowded. People in that field are standing on top of each other are remarks which kill desire fast. 4. Parental Dictation I've heard hundreds of young people explain their career choice with, I'd really like to prepare for something else, but my parents want me to do this, so I must. Most parents, I believe, do not intentionally dictate to their children what they must do. What all intelligent parents want is to see their children live successfully. If the young person will patiently explain why he or she prefers a different career, and if the parent will listen, there will be no friction. The objectives of both the parent and the young person for the young person's career are identical, success. 5. Family Responsibility The attitude of, 
It would have been wise for me to change over five years ago, but now I've got a family and I can't change, illustrates this kind of desire murder weapon. Throw away those murder weapons. Remember, the only way to get full power, to develop full go-force, is to do what you want to do. Surrender to desire and gain energy, enthusiasm, mental zip, and even better health. And it's never too late to let desire take over. The overwhelming majority of really successful people work much longer than 40 hours a week, and you don't hear them complain of overwork. Successful people have their eyes focused on a goal, and this provides energy. The point is this. Energy increases, multiplies, when you set a desired goal and resolve to work toward that goal. Many people, millions of them, can find new energy by selecting a goal and giving all they've got to accomplish that goal. Goals cure boredom. Goals even cure many chronic ailments. Let's probe a little deeper into the power of goals. When you surrender yourself to your desires, when you let yourself become obsessed with a goal, you receive the physical power, energy, and enthusiasm needed to accomplish your goal. But you receive something else, something equally valuable. You receive the automatic instrumentation needed to keep you going straight to your objective. The most amazing thing about a deeply entrenched goal is that it keeps you on course to reach your target. This isn't double talk. What happens is this. When you surrender to your goal, the goal works itself into your subconscious mind. Your subconscious mind is always in balance. Your conscious mind is not, unless it is in tune with what your subconscious mind is thinking. Without full cooperation from the subconscious mind, a person is hesitant, confused, indecisive. Now, with your goal absorbed into your subconscious mind, you react the right way automatically. The conscious mind is free for clear, straight thinking. Let's illustrate this with two hypothetical persons. As you listen, you'll recognize these characters among the real people you know. We'll call them Tom and Jack. These fellows are comparable in all respects except one. Tom has a firmly entrenched goal. Jack does not. Tom has a crystal-clear image of what he wants to be. He pictures himself as a corporation vice president ten years hence. Because Tom has surrendered to his goal, his goal through his subconscious mind signals to him saying, do this, or don't do that, it won't help get you where you want to go. The goal constantly speaks, I am the image you want to make real. Here is what you must do to make me real. Tom's goal does not pilot him in vague generalities. It gives him specific directions in all his activities. When Tom buys a suit, the goal speaks and shows Tom the wise choice. The goal helps to show Tom what steps to take to move up to the next job, what to say in the business conference, what to do when conflict develops, what to read, what stand to take. Should Tom drift a little off course, his automatic instrumentation, housed securely in his subconscious mind, alerts him and tells him what to do to get back on course. Tom's goal has made him super-sensitive to all the many forces at work that affect him. Jack, on the other hand, lacking a goal, also lacks the automatic instrumentation to guide him. He is easily confused. His actions reflect no personal policy. Jack wavers, shifts, guesses at what to do. Lacking consistency of purpose, Jack flounders on the ruddy road to mediocrity. May I suggest you listen to this section again, right now. Let this concept soak in. Then look around you. Study the very top echelon of successful persons. Note how they, without exception, are totally devoted to their objective. Observe how the life of a highly successful person is integrated around a purpose. Surrender to that goal. Really surrender. Let it obsess you. 
and give you the automatic instrumentation you need to reach that goal. On occasion, all of us have waked up on Saturday morning with no plans, no agenda, either mental or written, that spells out what we're going to do. On days like that, we accomplish next to nothing. We aimlessly drift through the day, glad when it's finally over. But when we face the day with a plan, we get things done. This common experience provides an important lesson. To accomplish something, we must plan to accomplish something. Before World War II, our scientists saw the potential power locked in the atom. But relatively little was known about how to split the atom and unleash that tremendous power. When the United States entered the war, forward-thinking scientists saw the potential power of an atomic bomb. A crash program was developed to accomplish just one goal, build an atomic bomb. The result is history. In just a few years, the concentrated effort paid off. The bombs were dropped, and the war was ended. But without that crash program to accomplish a goal, splitting the atom would have been delayed perhaps a decade, maybe longer. Set goals to get things done. Our great production system would be hopelessly bogged down if production executives did not establish and adhere to target dates and production schedules. Sales executives know salesmen sell more when they are given a carefully defined quota to sell. Professors know students get term papers written on time when a deadline is set. Now, as you press forward to success, set goals, deadlines, target dates, self-imposed quotas. You will accomplish only what you plan to accomplish. According to Dr. George E. Birch of the Tulane University School of Medicine, an expert in the study of human longevity, many things determine how long you will live. Weight, heredity, diet, psychic tension, personal habits. But Dr. Birch says, the quickest way to the end is to retire and do nothing. Every human being must keep an interest in life just to keep living. Each of us has a choice. Retirement can be the beginning or the end. The do-nothing-but-eat-sleep-and-rock attitude is the poison-yourself-fast form of retirement. Most folks who regard retirement as the end of purposeful living soon find retirement is the end of life itself. With nothing to live for, no goals, people waste away fast. The other extreme, the sensible way to retire, is the I'm-going-to-pitch-right-in-and-start-fast method. One of my finest friends, Lou Gordon, has chosen this way to retire. Lou's retirement several years ago as a vice president of Atlanta's biggest bank was really commencement day for him. He established himself as a business consultant, and his pace is amazing. Now in his 60s, he serves numerous clients and is in national demand as a speaker. One of his special projects is helping to build Pi Sigma Epsilon, a young but fast-growing fraternity for professional salesmen and sales executives. Every time I see Lou, he seems younger. He's a young 30 in spirit. Few people I know of any age are reaping more from life than this senior citizen who resolved not to go out to pasture. And the Lou Gordons aren't the boring old grumps feeling sorry for themselves because they're old. Goals, intense goals, can keep a person alive when nothing else will. Mrs. D., the mother of a college friend of mine, contracted cancer when her son was only two. To darken matters, her husband had died only three months before her illness was diagnosed. Her physicians offered little hope. But Mrs. D. would not give up. She was determined that she would see her two-year-old son through college by operating a small retail store left her by her husband. There were numerous surgical operations. Each time, the doctors would say, just a few more months. The cancer was never cured. But those few more months stretched into twenty years. She saw her son graduated from college. Six weeks later, she was gone. A goal, a burning desire, 
was powerful enough to stave off sure death for two decades. Use goals to live longer. No medicine in the world, and your physician will bear this out, is as powerful in bringing about long life as is the desire to do something. The person determined to achieve maximum success learns the principle that progress is made one step at a time. A house is built a brick at a time. Football games are won a play at a time. A department store grows bigger one new customer at a time. Every big accomplishment is a series of little accomplishments. Eric Severide, the well-known author and correspondent, reported in Reader's Digest, April 1957, that the best advice he ever received was the principle of the next mile. Here's part of what he said. During World War II, I and several others had to parachute from a crippled army transport plane into the mountainous jungle on the Burma-India border. It was several weeks before an armed relief expedition could reach us, and then we began a painful, plodding march out to civilized India. We were faced by a 140-mile trek over mountains in August heat and monsoon rains. In the first hour of the march, I rammed a boot nail deep into one foot. By evening, I had bleeding blisters the size of a 50-cent piece on both feet. Could I hobble 140 miles? Could the others, some in worse shape than I, complete such a distance? We were convinced we could not, but we could hobble to that ridge, we could make the next friendly village for the night, and that, of course, was all we had to do. When I relinquished my job and income to undertake a book of a quarter of a million words, I could not bear to let my mind dwell on the whole scope of the project. I would surely have abandoned what has become my deepest source of professional pride. I tried to think only of the next paragraph, not the next page, and certainly not the next chapter. Thus, for six solid months, I never did anything but set down one paragraph after another. The book wrote itself. Years ago, I took on a daily writing and broadcasting chore that has totaled now more than 2,000 scripts. Had I been asked at the time to sign a contract to write 2,000 scripts, I would have refused in despair at the enormousness of such an undertaking. But I was only asked to write one, the next one, and that is all I have ever done. The principle of the next mile works for Eric Severide, and it will work for you. The step-by-step -step method is the only intelligent way to attain any objective. The best formula I have heard for quitting smoking, the one that has worked for more of my friends than any other, I call the hour-by-hour -hour method. Instead of trying to reach the ultimate goal, freedom from the habit, just by resolving never to smoke again, the person resolves not to smoke for another hour. When the hour is up, the smoker simply renews his resolution not to smoke for another hour. Later, as desire diminishes, the period is extended to two hours, later to a day. Eventually, the goal is won. The person who wants freedom from the habit all at once fails because the psychological pain is more than he can stand. An hour is easy. Forever is difficult. Winning any objective requires a step-by-step -step method. To the junior executive, each assignment, however insignificant it may appear, should be viewed as an opportunity to take one step forward. A salesman qualifies for management responsibilities one sale at a time. To the minister, each sermon, to the professor, each lecture, to the scientist, each experiment, to the business executive, each conference, is an opportunity to take one step forward toward the large goal. Sometimes it appears that someone achieves success all at once. But if you check the past histories of people who seemed to arrive at the top suddenly, you'll discover a lot of solid groundwork was previously laid. And those successful people who lose fame as fast as they found it simply were phonies who had not built a solid foundation. Just as a beautiful building is created from pieces of stone, 
each of which in itself appears insignificant. In like manner, the successful life is constructed. Do this. Start marching toward your ultimate goal by making the next task you perform, regardless of how unimportant it may seem, a step in the right direction. Commit this question to memory and use it to evaluate everything you do. Will this help take me where I want to go? If the answer is no, back off. If yes, press ahead. It's clear we do not make one big jump to success. We get there one step at a time. An excellent plan is to set monthly quotas for accomplishment. Here is a guide to help achieve these goals. Examine yourself. Decide what specific things you should do to make yourself more effective. Then, when the 30-day period is up, check your progress and build a new 30-day goal. Always keep working on the little things to get you in shape for the big things. 30-Day Improvement Guide Between now and the next 30 days, I will A. Break these habits. Suggestions 1. Putting off things 2. Negative language 3. Watching TV more than 60 minutes per day 4. Gossip B. Acquire these habits. Suggestions 1. A rigid morning examination of my appearance 2. Plan each day's work the night before 3. Compliment people at every possible opportunity C. Increase my value to my employer in these ways. Suggestions 1. Do a better job of developing my subordinates. 2. Learn more about my company, what it does, and the customers it serves. 3. Make three specific suggestions to help my company become more efficient. D. Increase my value to my home in these ways. Suggestions 1. Show more appreciation for the little things my wife does that I've been taking for granted. 2. Once each week, do something special with my whole family. 3. Give one hour each day of my undivided attention to my family. E. Sharpen my mind in these ways. Suggestions. 1. Invest two hours each week in reading professional magazines in my field. 2. Read one self-help book. 3. Make four new friends. 4. Spend 30 minutes daily in quiet, undisturbed thinking. Next time you see a particularly well-poised, well-groomed, clear-thinking, effective person, remind yourself that he wasn't born that way. Lots of conscious effort, invested day by day, made the person what he is. Building new positive habits and destroying old negative habits is a day-by-day -day process. Create your first 30-day improvement guide right now. Often, when I discuss setting goals, someone comments along these lines. I see that working toward a purpose is important, but so often things happen that upset my plans. It's true that many factors outside your control do affect your destination. There may be serious illness or death in your family, the job you're gunning for may be dissolved, you may meet with an accident. So here is a point we must fix firmly in mind. Prepare to take detours in stride. If you are driving down a road and you come to a road-closed situation, you wouldn't camp there, nor would you go back home. The road-closed simply means you can't go where you want to go on this road. You'd simply find another road to take you where you want to go. Observe what military leaders do. When they develop a master plan to take an objective, they also map out alternative plans. If something unforeseen happens that rules out plan A, they switch to plan B. You rest easy in an airplane even though the airport where you plan to land is closed in because you know the fellow up there driving the plane has alternative landing fields and a reserve fuel supply. It's a rare person who has achieved high-level success who has not had to take detours, many of them. When we detour, we don't have to change our goals. We just travel a different route.
You've probably heard many persons say something like, Oh, how I wish I had bought XX stock back in 19 blank. I'd have a pile of money today. Normally, people think of investing in terms of stocks or bonds, real estate, or some other type of property. But the biggest and most rewarding kind of investment is self-investment, purchasing things that build mental power and proficiency. The progressive business knows that how strong it will be five years from now depends not on what it does five years in the future, but rather on what it does, invests, this year. Profit comes from only one source, investment. There's a lesson for each of us. To profit, to get the extra reward above a normal income in the years ahead, we must invest in ourselves. We must invest to achieve our goals. Here are two sound self-investments that will pay handsome profits in the years ahead. 1. Invest in education. True education is the soundest investment you can make in yourself. But let's be sure we understand what education really is. Some folks measure education by the number of years spent in school or the number of diplomas, certificates, and degrees earned. But this quantitative approach to education doesn't necessarily produce a successful person. Ralph J. Cordner, chairman of General Electric, expressed the attitude of top business management toward education this way. Two of our most outstanding presidents, Mr. Wilson and Mr. Coffin, never had an opportunity to attend college. Although some of our present officers have doctor's degrees, 12 out of 41 have no college degrees. We are interested in competency, not diplomas. A diploma or degree may help you get a job, but it will not guarantee your progress on the job. Business is interested in competency, not diplomas. To others, education means the quantity of information a person has stashed away in his brain. But the soak-up facts method of education won't get you where you want to go. More and more, we depend on books, files, and machines to warehouse information. If we can do only what a machine can do, we're in a real fix. Real education, the kind worth investing in, is that which develops and cultivates your mind. How well-educated a person is, is measured by how well his mind is developed, in brief, by how well he thinks. Anything that improves thinking ability is education, and you can obtain education in many ways, but the most efficient sources of education for most people are nearby colleges and universities. Education is their business. If you haven't been to college lately, you're in for some wonderful surprises. You'll be pleased at the wide course offerings available. You'll be even more pleased to discover who goes to school after work. Not the phonies, but rather really promising persons, many of whom already hold very responsible positions. In one evening class of 25 persons I conducted recently, there were an owner of a retail chain of 12 stores, two buyers for a national food chain, four graduate engineers, an Air Force colonel, and several others of similar status. Many people earn degrees in evening programs these days, but the degree, which in the final analysis is only a piece of paper, is not their primary motivation. They are going to school to build their minds, which is a sure way to invest in a better future. And make no mistake about this, education is a real bargain. A moderate investment will keep you in school one night each week for a full year. Compute the cost as a percentage of your gross income, and then ask yourself, isn't my future worth this small investment? Why not make an investment decision right now? Call it school, one night a week for life. It will keep you progressive, young, alert. It will keep you abreast of your areas of interest. And it will surround you with other people who also are going places. 2. Invest in idea starters. Education helps you mold your mind, stretch it, train it to meet new situations and solve problems. Idea starters serve a related purpose. 
They feed your mind, give you constructive material to think about. Where are the best sources of idea starters? There are many, but to get a steady supply of high-quality idea material, why not do this? Resolve to purchase at least one stimulating book each month and subscribe to two magazines or journals that stress ideas. For only a minor sum and a minimum of time, you can be tuned in to some of the best thinkers available anywhere. At a luncheon one day, I overheard one fellow say, But it costs too much. I can't afford to take the Wall Street Journal. His companion, obviously a much more success-minded person, replied, Well, I've found that I can't afford not to take it. Again, take your cue from the successful people. Invest in yourself. Let's take action. Now, in a quick recap, put these success-building principles to work. 1. Get a clear fix on where you want to go. Create an image of yourself 10 years from now. 2. Write out your 10-year plan. Your life is too important to be left to chance. Put down on paper what you want to accomplish in your work, your home, and your social departments. 3. Surrender yourself to your desires. Set goals to get more energy. Set goals to get things done. Set goals and discover the real enjoyment of living. 4. Let your major goal be your automatic pilot. When you let your goal absorb you, you'll find yourself making the right decisions to reach your goal. 5. Achieve your goal one step at a time. Regard each task you perform, regardless of how small it may seem, as a step toward your goal. 6. Build 30-day goals. Day-by-day -day effort pays off. 7. Take detours in stride. A detour simply means another route. It should never mean surrendering the goal. 8. Invest in yourself. Purchase those things that build mental power and efficiency. Invest in education. Invest in idea starters. Chapter 13. How to Think Like a Leader Remind yourself once again that you are not pulled to high levels of success. Rather, you are lifted there by those working beside and below you. Achieving high-level success requires the support and the cooperation of others. And gaining this support and cooperation of others requires leadership ability. Success and the ability to lead others, that is, getting them to do things they wouldn't do if they were not led, go hand in hand. The success-producing principles explained in the previous chapters are valuable equipment in helping you develop your leadership capacity. At this point, we want to master four special leadership rules or principles that can cause others to do things for us in the executive suite, in business, in social clubs, in the home, anywhere we find people. These four leadership rules or principles are 1. Trade minds with the people you want to influence. 2. Think. What is the human way to handle this? 3. Think progress, believe in progress, push for progress. 4. Take time out to confer with yourself and develop your supreme thinking power. Practicing these rules produces results. Putting them to use in everyday situations takes the mystery out of that gold-plated word, leadership. Let's see how. Leadership Rule Number 1 Trade Minds with the People You Want to Influence Trading minds with the people you want to influence is a magic way to get others, friends, associates, customers, employees, to act the way you want them to act. Study these two case histories and see why. Ted B. worked as a television copywriter and director for a large advertising agency. When the agency obtained a new account, a children's shoe manufacturer, Ted was assigned responsibility for developing several TV commercials. A month or so after the campaign had been launched, 
it became clear that the advertising was doing little or nothing to increase product movement in retail outlets. Attention was focused on the TV commercials, because in most cities only television advertising was used. Through research of television viewers, they found that about 4% of the people thought it was simply a great commercial, one of the best, these 4% said. The remaining 96% were either indifferent to the commercials or, in plain language, thought they smelled. Hundreds of comments like these were volunteered. It's wacky. The rhythm sounds like a New Orleans band at 3 a.m. My kids like to watch most TV commercials, but when that shoe thing comes on, they go to the bathroom or refrigerator. I think it's too uppity-up. Seems to me someone's trying to be too clever. Something especially interesting turned up when all the interviews were put together and analyzed. The 4% who liked the commercial were people pretty much like Ted in terms of income, education, sophistication, and interests. The remaining 96% were definitely in a different socioeconomic class. Ted's commercials, which cost a lot of money, flopped because Ted thought only of his own interests. He had prepared the commercials thinking of the way he buys shoes, not the way the great majority buys shoes. He developed commercials that pleased him personally, not commercials that pleased the great bulk of the people. The results would have been much different had Ted projected himself into the minds of the masses of ordinary people and asked himself two questions. If I were a parent, what kind of a commercial would make me want to buy those shoes? If I were a child, what kind of a commercial would make me go tell my mom or dad that I want those shoes? Why Joan Failed in Retailing Joan is an intelligent, well-educated, attractive girl of 24. Fresh from college, Joan got a job as an assistant buyer in ready-to-wear goods at a low-to-medium-priced department store. She came highly recommended. Joan has ambition, talent, and enthusiasm, one letter read. She is certain to succeed in a big way. But Joan did not succeed in a big way. Joan lasted only eight months and then quit retailing for other work. I knew her buyer well, and one day I asked him what happened. Joan is a fine girl, and she has many fine qualities, he said. But she had one major limitation. What was that, I asked. Well, Joan was forever buying merchandise that she liked, but most of our customers didn't. She selected styles, colors, materials, and prices she liked without putting herself in the shoes of the people who shop here. When I'd suggest to her that maybe a certain line wasn't right for us, she'd say, Oh, they'll love this. I do. I think this will move fast. Joan had been brought up in a well-to-do home. She had been educated to want quality. Price was not important to her. Joan just couldn't see clothing through the eyes of low-to-middle-income people, so the merchandise she bought just wasn't suitable. The point is this. To get others to do what you want them to do, you must see things through their eyes. When you trade minds, the secret of how to influence other people effectively shows up. A very successful salesman friend told me he spends a lot of time anticipating how prospects will react to his presentation before he gives it. Trading minds with the audience helps the speaker design a more interesting, harder-hitting talk. Trading minds with employees helps the supervisor provide more effective, better-received instructions. A young credit executive explained to me how this technique worked for him. When I was brought into this store, a medium-sized clothing store, as assistant credit manager, I was assigned the job of handling all collection correspondence. The collection letters the store had been using greatly disappointed me. They were strong, insulting, and threatening. I read them and thought, Brother, I'd be mad as hell if somebody sent me letters like these. I never would pay. So I just got to work and started writing the kind of letter that would move me to pay an overdue bill if I received it. It worked. 
By putting myself in the shoes of the overdue customer, so to speak, collections climbed to a record high. Numerous political candidates lose elections because they fail to look at themselves through the minds of the typical voters. One political candidate for a national office, apparently fully as qualified as his opponent, lost by a tremendous margin for one single reason. He used a vocabulary that only a small percentage of the voters could understand. His opponent, on the other hand, thought in terms of the voters' interests. When he talked to farmers, he used their language. When he spoke to factory workers, he used words they were easily familiar with. When he spoke on TV, he addressed himself to Mr. Typical Voter, not to Dr. College Professor. Keep this question in mind. What would I think of this if I exchanged places with the other person? It paves the way to more successful action. Thinking of the interests of the people we want to influence is an excellent thought rule in every situation. A few years ago, a small electronics manufacturer developed a fuse that would never blow out. The manufacturer priced the product to sell for $1.25 and then retained an advertising agency to promote it. The account executive placed in charge of the advertising immediately became intensely enthusiastic. His plan was to blanket the country with mass advertising on TV, radio, and newspapers. This is it, he said. We'll sell 10 million the first year. His advisors tried to caution him, explaining that fuses are not a popular item, they have no romantic appeal, and people want to get by as cheaply as possible when they buy fuses. Why not, the advisors said, use selected magazines and sell it to the high-income levels? They were overruled, and the mass campaign was underway, only to be called off in six weeks because of disappointing results. The trouble was this. The advertising executive looked at the high-priced fuses with his eyes, the eyes of a high-income person. He failed to see the product through the eyes of the mass-market income levels. Had he put himself in their position, he would have seen the wisdom of directing the promotion toward the upper-income groups, and the account would have been saved. Develop your power to trade minds with the people you want to influence. The following exercises will help. Practice trading minds exercises. Situation. Giving someone work instructions. For best results, ask yourself, Looking at this from the viewpoint of someone who is new to this, have I made myself clear? Situation. Writing an advertisement. For best results, ask yourself, if I were a typical prospective buyer, how would I react to this ad? Situation, telephone manners. For best results, ask yourself, if I were the other person, what would I think of my telephone voice and manners? Situation, gift. For best results, ask yourself, is this gift something I would like or is it something he will like? Often there is an enormous difference. Situation, the way I give orders. For best results, ask yourself, would I like to carry out orders if they were given to me the way I give them to others? Situation, child discipline. For best results, ask yourself, if I were the child, considering his age, experience, and emotions, how would I react to this discipline? Situation, my appearance. For best results, ask yourself, what would I think of my superior if he were dressed like me? Situation, preparing a speech. For best results, ask yourself, considering the background and interests of the audience, what would I think of this remark? Situation, entertainment. For best results, ask yourself, if I were my guests, what kinds of food, music, and entertainment would I like best? Put the Trading Minds Principle to work for you. 1. Consider the other person's situation. Put yourself in his shoes, so to speak. Remember, his interests, income, intelligence, and background may differ considerably from yours. 2. Now ask yourself, if I were in his situation, how would I react to this? 
whatever it is you want him to do. 3. Then take the action that would move you if you were the other person. Leadership Rule Number 2. Think. What is the human way to handle this? People use different approaches to leadership situations. One approach is to assume the position of a dictator. The dictator makes all decisions without consulting those affected. He refuses to hear his subordinate's side of a question because, deep down, perhaps, he's afraid the subordinate might be right and this would cause him to lose face. Dictators don't last long. Employees may fake loyalty for a while, but unrest soon develops. Some of the best employees leave, and those remaining get together and plot against the tyrant. The result is that the organization ceases to function smoothly. This puts the dictator in a bad light with his superior. A second leadership technique is the cold, mechanical, I'm a rule book operator approach. The fellow using this approach handles everything exactly according to the book. He doesn't recognize that every rule or policy or plan is only a guide for the usual cases. This would-be leader treats human beings as machines, and of all things people don't like, perhaps the most disliked is being treated like a machine. The cold, impersonal efficiency expert is not an ideal. The machines that work for him develop only part of their energy. Persons who rise to tremendous leadership heights use a third approach that we call being human. Several years ago, I worked closely with John S., who is an executive in the engineering development section of a large aluminum manufacturer. John had mastered the be human approach and was enjoying its rewards. In dozens of little ways, John made his actions say, You are a human being. I respect you. I'm here to help you in every way I can. When an individual from another city joined his department, John went to considerable personal inconvenience to help him find suitable housing. Working through his secretary and two other women employees, he set up office birthday parties for each member of the staff. The thirty minutes or so required for this was not a cost. Rather, it was an investment in getting loyalty and output. When he learned that one of his staff members belonged to a minority faith, John called him in and explained that he would arrange for him to observe his religious holidays that don't coincide with the more common holidays. When an employee or someone in the employee's family was ill, John remembered. He took time to compliment his staff individually for their off-the-job accomplishments. But the largest evidence of John's be-human philosophy showed up in the way he handled a dismissal problem. One of the employees who had been hired by John's predecessor simply lacked the aptitude and interest for the work involved. John handled the problem magnificently. He did not use the conventional procedure of calling the employee into his office and giving him first the bad news and then second, fifteen or thirty days to move out. Instead, he did two unusual things. First, he explained why it would be to the employee's personal advantage to find a new situation where his aptitudes and interests would be more useful. He worked with the employee and put him in touch with a reputable vocational guidance consultant. Next, he did something else above and beyond the call of duty. He helped the employee find a new job by setting up interviews with executives in other companies where the employee's skills were needed. In just 18 days after the dismissal conference, the employee was relocated in a very promising situation. This dismissal procedure intrigued me, so I asked John to explain his thinking behind it. He explained it this way. There's an old maxim I've formed and held in my mind, he began. Whoever is under a man's power is under his protection, too. We never should have hired this man in the first place, because he's not cut out for this kind of work. But since we did, the least I could do was help him to relocate. Anybody, John continued, can hire a man. 
but the test of leadership is how one handles the dismissal. By helping that employee relocate before he left us, built up a feeling of job security in everyone in my department. I let them know by example that no one gets dumped on the street as long as I'm here. Make no mistake, John's Be Human brand of leadership paid off. There were no secret gossip sessions about John. He received unquestioned loyalty and support. He had maximum job security because he gave maximum job security to his subordinates. For about 15 years, I've been close to a fellow I'll call Bob W. Bob is in his late 50s. He came up the hard way. With a hit-or-miss education and no money, Bob found himself out of work in 1931. But he's always been a scrambler. Not one to be idle, Bob started an upholstery shop in his garage. Thanks to his untiring efforts, the business grew, and today it's a modern furniture manufacturing plant with over 300 employees. Today, Bob is a millionaire. Money and material things have ceased to be a concern. But Bob is rich in other ways, too. He's a millionaire in friends, contentment, and satisfaction. Of Bob's many fine qualities, his tremendous desire to help other people stands out. Bob is human, and he's a specialist in treating others the way human beings want to be treated. One day, Bob and I were discussing the matter of criticizing people. Bob's human way of doing it is a master formula. Here's the way he put it. I don't think you could find anybody who would say I'm a softy or a weakling. I run a business. When something isn't going right, I fix it. But it's the way I fix it. That's important. If employees are doing something wrong or are making a mistake, I am doubly careful not to hurt their feelings and make them feel small or embarrassed. I just use four simple steps. First, I talk to them privately. Second, I praise them for what they are doing well. Third, I point out the one thing at the moment that they could do better, and I help them find the way. Fourth, I praise them again on their good points. And this four-step formula works. When I do it this way, people thank me, because I've found that's exactly the way they like it. When they walk out of this office, they have been reminded that they are not only pretty good, they can be even better. I've been betting on people all my life, Bob says, and the better I treat them, the more good things happen to me. I honestly don't plan it that way. That's just the way it works out. Let me give you an example. Back about, oh, five or six years ago, one of the production men came to work drunk. Pretty soon there was a commotion in the plant. It seems this fellow had taken a five-gallon can of lacquer and was splashing it all over the place. Well, the other workman took the lacquer away from him, and the plant superintendent escorted him out. I walked outside and found him sitting against the building in a kind of stupor. I helped him up, put him in my car, and took him to his home. His wife was frantic. I tried to reassure her that everything would be all right. Oh, but you don't understand, she said. Mr. W., me, doesn't stand for anyone being drunk on the job. Jim's lost his job, and now what will we do? I told her Jim wouldn't be dismissed. She asked how I knew. The reason I explained is because I'm Mr. W. She almost fainted. I told her I'd do all I could to help Jim at the plant, and I hoped she'd do all she could at home and just have him on the job in the morning. When I got back to the plant, I went down to Jim's department and spoke to Jim's co-workers. I told them, You've seen something unpleasant here today, but I want you to forget it. Jim will be back tomorrow. Be kind to him. He's been a good worker for a long time, and we owe it to him to give him another chance. Jim got back on the ball, and his drinking was never again a problem. I soon forgot about the incident, but Jim didn't. Two years ago, the headquarters of the local union sent some men here to negotiate the contract for the local. They had some staggering, simply unrealistic demands. Jim, quiet, meek Jim, suddenly became a leader. He got busy and reminded the fellows in the plant that they'd always gotten a fair deal from Mr. W., 
and we didn't need outsiders coming to tell us how to run our affairs. The outsiders left, and as usual, we negotiated our contract like friends, thanks to Jim. Here are two ways to use the Be Human approach to make you a better leader. First, each time you face a difficult matter involving people, ask yourself, what is the human way to handle this? Ponder over this question when there is a disagreement among your subordinates, or when an employee creates a problem. Remember Bob W.'s formula for helping others correct their mistakes. Avoid sarcasm. Avoid being cynical. Avoid taking people down a peg or two. Avoid putting others in their place. Ask, what is the human way to deal with people?